and welcome to Coptic Canonia, where we talk to members of the Coptic community about their passions and talents so we can grow together as one. Hello everyone and welcome back to Coptic Canonia. Today again we have a very special guest. Her name is Miriam Elias. Miriam graduated from Rutgers Newark majoring in biology and minoring in chemistry. She volunteered her time tutoring organic chemistry and working in the writing center there at Rutgers. Many of you probably already know Miriam as the creator of iLias. She uses that platform to mentor students and talk about the application process for optometry as she's entering into optometry school this coming year. And I just gotta say, the name iLias Super clever. I love it. Get it? You know, optometry, eyes, eyes, haha. Her last name is Elias. I love it. Anyways, hi, Miriam. Hey, Tony. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. Of course. So, Miriam, I probably, you know, butchered talking about Elias a little bit. So, could you give us a better picture of what your account is and its purpose? And, you know, what made you start it in the first place? So no, you didn't butcher it. iLias is a platform I created to connect with other people in healthcare, specifically in optometry, and to try to share my experiences with those applying. So along with doing so, I also use iLias to share things about my personal life, like our faith, and it's been a way for me to better connect with my audience since they're getting a real view of what goes on in my life. Well, it's very refreshing to hear, you know, that you're using your platform, not just for teaching people about, you know, the optometry school application process, but to share about your faith as well. And I know you, you know, you intended in the beginning for it to just be about optometry, but what motivated you to begin using that to share about the Coptic Church? So I'm glad that you mentioned that. When I was creating it, I actually went back and forth if sharing the fact that I was Coptic Orthodox or sharing any religious content would be appropriate. So at first, I didn't find it all that necessary, but I found that to be wrong. I think I harbored a lot of misconceptions growing up about being Coptic Orthodox, and then when I started to address them, it motivated me to be more open about it when I created Elias. So what do you mean by misconceptions? So I guess prior to reaching college, I felt like my life was an ongoing paradox. Um, I struggled with being a Coptic Orthodox girl and just being a regular American girl. So I didn't feel like I fit in a specific category, but somewhere in the middle. So I guess the best way to address what I mean by misconception is sharing some experiences. Throughout all my Sunday school services, I've always worked with younger children. So like most Coptic kids, my kids looked forward to Mahragan, the Mahragan contest every year. So there was this one year where I was serving first grade and they were asked to learn the Thanksgiving prayer in Coptic. And I actually didn't read any Coptic at the time, but I remember the head servant pointing to the boys that I served with and assuring the kids that the boys would teach them. So the misconception here, only boys should know and teach Coptic. And when the servant said this, it went right through me. I didn't bat an eyelash and I wasn't bothered by it. But later when we all sat down to reconvene as a class, I noticed how offended the girls I served with were. And it's funny because they went on to teach the kids over the course of the next couple of weeks the Thanksgiving prayer in Coptic, because the boys that I served with actually didn't know any Coptic. So I, I think this misconception here, it, it paints a much bigger picture that a lot of us 
including myself, try to ignore, you know, and look past. And I think that bigger picture is, you know, gender in the church and how our culture affects what we think about men versus women. And I know for a lot of guys, we get uncomfortable talking about this topic, but it's, it's pretty important that we address it head on. So can you tell me how you resolved this misconception in your head? Yes, I would love to. So I just want to give a little disclaimer that, you know, I'm a girl and I went through this, but a lot of girls in the Coptic church probably never experienced this. For me, I always thought that reading and singing Coptic was out of reach. I never took Alhen seriously as a kid, and at some point I just stopped going. This situation in particular stirred something in me to learn, and I became very motivated to read. So I didn't go into learning with the mindset that it's some forward feminist stride, but I did it for myself so I can understand and follow along during the services. But now taking a step back, I feel as though it's okay to admit that me learning was for the greater good. And it's for all the little girls in my class that were told that the boys were going to teach them. How can we take this you know, idea and broaden it to alter our view on women in the church? I think you know, we should make a clear distinction about what our culture says about women versus you know, what our faith says about women in the church. Absolutely. So I think that the problem stems from people not fully understanding biblical text. And this goes hand in hand with the way that our culture unfortunately views the female gender. In the Middle East, women are viewed as second class citizens. And even though we live in a very, very progressive world, that's just how it is over there. In general, there are unsaid rules about how women should carry themselves in church, and none of them have to do with scriptural teaching. So I think we need to make a clear distinction about how our culture views the female gender versus how society views and misconstrues it. We often take scripture and put our own cultural twist on it. For instance, scripture reveals that the pastoral role is meant for the male gender. But in turn, that often translates to girls shouldn't read Coptic, shouldn't attend Tazbihat, and shouldn't lead the congregation, etc. The truth is, God created man and woman with unique gifts that the other doesn't have. Both were created in the image of Christ, and both are ontologically equal in terms of salvation. So without the many women that tirelessly work to serve the church, we wouldn't function as one body. For example, the women that serve choir and teach alhan and maintain Sunday school classes, they have the responsibility of making sure our traditions are preserved and passed down to our kids. Perhaps the best example we can use to represent a woman's importance and role is St. Mary. God chose her as an integral part of his journey in granting us salvation. So we definitely shouldn't be viewing their roles in the church as any less valuable or significant than men. Okay, I, I'm glad you mentioned that, Miriam, because the point of this podcast is to incorporate our Coptic faith with our everyday lives. So let's address the fact that there are some verses that, you know, we kind of cringe at and try to avoid talking about when they talk specifically about women in the church. And I know one of the verses that a lot that comes to a lot of people's minds is in Ephesians 5. So do you think you could talk to us a little bit about that? Yes. So I can definitely agree with that. I think a lot of feminist writers like to take certain verses out of context and kind of use it to benefit their own personal agendas. So I think it's best that we, we do address Ephesians 5.22, which is the Pauline epistle that's read during the marriage ceremony. I want to start by talking about a verse that doesn't really get that much attention. And it's the verse before it in Ephesians 5.21. So it goes as, submit to one another out of respect for Christ. 
And this verse is very crucial in understanding the instructions that follow. The instructions to wives and husbands in this epistle are found in what scholars refer to as the household code. And what's unusual and interesting about this is that in similar pagan instruction, only the head of the household was given instruction because he was the one in control. However, in the Christian household, everyone is deemed worthy of instruction, and we see that St. Paul extends the same dignity to both the husband and the wife. So with that being said, I think it's time to approach the infamous wives submit to your own husbands, and that's Ephesians 5.22. I think this verse is misunderstood, and it's often really taken out of context. And I'm the first to admit that I used to cringe when I heard it. And, you know, Coptic weddings aren't exclusively meant for cops. There are friends and loved ones that come from other walks of life. And I remember being that person, you know, looking around from the corner of my eye, peering to see who would twitch when this verse was read. And let's just jump right into it. Paul's basic meaning is clear. Service in a Christian household is expected of all, since all respect the Lord who washed his disciples' feet. That service takes place and manifests in different forms for husband and wife. And Paul sums that up in verse 33. He basically says that the husband serves by loving his, himself, his wife as himself, and the wife serves by respecting the husband. The relationship of husband and wife is patterned after the relationship between Christ and the church. So really, what is the so-called authority and respect that must be paid to the husband even mean? And what is St. Paul saying about authority, knowing that it's mirrored in the relationship between Christ and the church? The answer, like many things, lies in scripture. So if people were to turn to Mark 10, verse 42 to 44, Jesus addressed the 12th saying, you know, those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but who desires to become great among you shall be your servant. So here in a single stroke, Christ rejects the secular understanding of authority as the power to impose one's will, and he replaces it with the power to serve. The husband's authority translates to service for his wife and a willingness to die for her sake. We see that Christ provides the model for leadership, and leadership entails things like loneliness, self-denial, loving service, and a willingness to die for the other person. And the reason why I like that we brought this up is because I think this epistle gets a lot of heat and attention, and I think it's often taken out of context in our progressive times. You know, I'm, I'm very glad you mentioned, uh, you know, all of this. And what really stuck with me was the idea that Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. You know, Jesus being the model for the husband washed the feet of the church, right, of the disciples and died for the church. So thank you, Miriam, that, that clarifies a lot. And uh, I just want to, I want to hit one more point, which is, you know, when God created man and woman, he created them in his image with different characteristics of his own. So that when they're married, they end up completing each other. And it specifically says in Genesis that God created a helper comparable to Adam and comparable by definition means that they're equal, not under. And helper does not mean servant, which I know a lot of people, you know, they stick on helper and they think, oh, that means Eve was supposed to serve Adam. But helper, we call the Holy Spirit the helper, right? And so it just means a partner, which, you know, when God created Adam, he created him to have dominion over the earth. So Eve was a partner in his dominion over the earth. And when sin entered into the world, we departed from this perfect plan where man and woman are 
equal, right? And and then even now, a lot of feminists, unfortunately, they try to teach us that, you know, man and woman have all of the same characteristics, but they're supposed to complete each other. So knowing that we often have these misinterpretations in our heads, how can we address it as a community? So I think this question really brings us home and underscores the real importance that comes with having this discussion. I think girls should be aware of their roles in the church and taught early on how to do so. They should be encouraged to learn a hen and to learn Coptic and to read hymns in church and to serve to their full capacity, really. And this will only come if they're encouraged and told that they are just as worthy as the boys and, you know, given a real explanation for why things are the way that they are. So you mentioned how we grew up with certain misconceptions. And what advice would you give to really anyone, I guess, or everyone, so that we make sure that we avoid coming up with these misconceptions of our own? Yes, that's a good question. So I think awareness is a big one. So take a step back and think before you speak and really ask yourself if what you're about to say to somebody aligns with our teachings or with your own opinion. So the more we as a community spread our personal ideologies, the heavier the plight is in terms of expressing and living out our religion the way that God intended it to be. We should also encourage girls in the same respect and make them feel present. Throughout my years of serving as a Sunday school teacher, it's been like six or seven years now, I found that girls were never the ones to speak up in class or raise their hands or ask questions. They always needed that little push and that little nudge of encouragement. So if you are a Sunday school teacher, make the girls feel present and teach them early on about their gifts and how to use their unique characteristics that God gave them. And make sure that they understand why things are the way that they are. The scripture is there and I feel like people don't take the time to explain it and they don't give it its due diligence. So make sure they understand why their service doesn't entail dressing as a deacon. I mean, stopping at the point that they're not boys is just not enough. So we started off talking about Elias, this optometry blog, and then we ended up talking about feminism in the Coptic church. How exactly do these two relate? So as we mentioned before, I created this platform to help those applying in optometry and network with other doctors. And, you know, when I was creating it, I thought long and hard about what to write in my bio. And I know, I know this seems really silly, but it's the first thing that people look at. So I wasn't sure if I wanted to include any religious content at first or even mention the fact that I'm Coptic Orthodox. But, you know, I'm really glad that I did. Going back to the things that I personally struggled with, I think a lot of it came from not understanding things. So for me, I wouldn't want to stand in Tezbeha because I didn't know what was going on half the time. With me saying this, I'm not trying to negate the fact that you shouldn't attend services that aren't in English. I think people will benefit if they go in with the mindset that they're going to take something from what's being said. I think also at the end of the day, God speaks to those who are willing to receive. So without beating this topic to death or sounding too poetic, church has a different flavor when you actually know what's happening. And I experienced this firsthand. I slowly started to learn how to share this part of myself and it brought me truly so much joy. And I also found that it was really difficult to hide the fact that I was Coptic Orthodox or Christian. For instance, like I would kind of test the waters at first and I would post a verse here and there. And in my blog posts, um, I would mention that God was my priority above all else. A lot of my blog posts centered around like how I studied for the OAT or how I planned my week or how I set my goals. And I mean, I wasn't trying to do this in an obnoxious way, but I did always mention that I would start studying with a small prayer and do my canon. Like that's essential to me every day. 
I found that this resonated with people and, you know, I got responses that I would have never expected in my life where doctors from like around the country would message me and, you know, thank me for reminding them to pray that day. So I'm definitely glad that I decided to share this part of my life. Thank you so much, Miriam. You, you brought up so many very important points that I think we all need to internalize and think about, especially this idea that, you know, sometimes our culture blinds us to how we should really be treating women in the Coptic church. Uh, do you have any concluding thoughts? To go off of something that Tony Galley mentioned last week, you have the opportunity to exist and integrate with secular society. And you should want to form meaningful relationships with people that aren't Coptic. You should let them see Christ through you. So part of being in the Coptic bubble has a lot to do with being embarrassed about our culture and religion. And, you know, I shared with my experiences that that's how I felt. So it shouldn't be like you go to Sunday school and you do your service at church on the weekend and then just go about normal life during the week. The two things shouldn't be mutually exclusive. So you don't need to have a social media platform or any type of social presence. I think you should be authentic and you should be yourself. You should never be scared to get answers to the questions that you have. Thank you so much, Miriam. You've really opened our eyes to many very important topics. Did you see what I did there? Haha. <laughs> I really appreciate you being on here, Miriam. Thank you so much for having me, Tony. Of course. And again, thank you to our listeners today. I hope this podcast can become an inspiration to us all, encouraging us to pursue our passions, to build one another, and become useful members in the body of Christ. I'm Tony Saad, and this is Copta Canonia. <laughs>